2 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 11 through 18. Paul writes, I have become a fool in boasting. You have compelled me. For I ought to have been commended by you. For in nothing was I behind the most eminent apostles. Though I am nothing... Truly, the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance and signs and wonders and mighty deeds. For what is it in which you were inferior to other churches, except that I myself was not burdensome to you? Forgive me this wrong. Now for the third time, I'm ready to come to you, and I will not be burdensome to you. For I do not seek yours, but you. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. And I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. But be that as it may, I did not burden you. Nevertheless, being crafty, I caught you by cunning. Did I take advantage of you by any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus and sent our brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not walk in the same spirit? Did we not walk in the same steps? In chapter 12, Paul provides... 12 proofs for his apostolic calling. And remember why he's providing those proofs, because it's being questioned. People are wondering whether or not he's a real apostle. And the proofs that he provides are, number one, his revelations from Christ, his journey into heaven in verses 1 through 6. Second, his thorn in the flesh in verses 7 through 10. Third, the apostolic signs And wonders and mighty deeds in verses 11 through 18, which we just read. And later, number four, his courage in dealing with sin in verses 19 through 21. So why does Paul again focus on these proofs? Once again, it's because he has been placed in an awkward and an uncomfortable position of defending his own apostolic calling and his apostolic ministry, Paul has become a target. Paul knew that you can't escape criticism by trying to please your critics. And in direct proportion to his ministry and his ministry impact, people were criticizing him. The proofs that Paul offers are somewhat counterintuitive. Supernatural revelations, yes, but pain? And not just any kind of pain, but inescapable pain, frequent pain, pain that that drives you to your knees, humility and power. You'll remember he said earlier in verse 9, and he has said to me, that's Jesus, my grace is sufficient for you for power is perfected in weakness. Paul has visions of heaven, but he also has pain right here on the earth. God doesn't restrict our lessons in this life to the presence or the absence of pain, but also to the presence or the absence of people. In other words, sometimes God might place you in a painful position by surrounding you with painful people. And those painful people can sometimes teach us valuable lessons. Remember, false teachers attacked Paul's reputation. They attacked his character. They attacked his integrity. They attacked his ministry. And the Corinthians, allegedly Paul's friends, responded by keeping quiet. Or maybe even agreeing with Paul's critics. Ouch. Paul, like the Beatles, thinks that He can get by with a little help from his friends. He might get high with a little help from his friends, with a little help from his friends. 
So in this passage of scripture, we come face to face with where we stand with Jesus. We're either helping the cause of Christ or we're hindering the work of Christ. The passage, in part, brings us to a place where we get to ask and answer a question. What is God doing in our lives? And how is he using us to further the gospel or hinder the gospel? And so which is it for you? Are you helping the cause of Christ or hindering the work of Christ? And by the way, help or hindrance might not always be related to what you might think. You might think that helping or hurting is in direct proportion to what you can and can't do. What gifts you have or have not been given. What it means to be active or inactive. You might be in a place where God is using you like never before. And you might be in a place where God has called you to a kind of a a time out. Where it's been a time of reflection. A time of submission. Inactive doesn't mean ineffective. But whatever else is true, the Lord wants you to be aware that he wants to use you for his glory and for your good. We weren't put on the earth to just simply sit out, but to stand out. And so, again, Paul will answer a persistent accusation. Look again in verse 11. I have become a fool in boasting. You have compelled me, for I ought to have been commended by you. For in nothing was I behind the most eminent apostles, though I am nothing. Now, remember what Paul has done in chapter 12. Why does Paul boast? The reason why he's come to his own aid and to his own defense is because his friends in the church of Corinth haven't come to his assistance. And by the way, the first line of defense for any legitimate minister is a legitimate ministry. And so Paul says, look, I've come to the end of my boasting. The critics had compromised and confused the church at Corinth. And for the sake of the ministry and for the protection of the church, Paul feels compelled to defend himself. Paul was accused of either being an inferior apostle or no apostle at all. And so that's why he says, you've compelled me. You didn't stick up for me. So now I'm going to have to stick up for myself for I ought to have been commended by you. In other words, given all of our experiences together, our friendship and our relationship together, this shouldn't have been that difficult. Tragically, the church didn't come to Paul's assistance. And so the big question becomes, does the church or the leadership of the church owe something to a godly minister? To a faithful minister. To a person who has been both godly and faithful. Is your commitment to ministry equal to the commitment of faithful ministers? And so this becomes, again, part of the point. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, Jesus said, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. And so Paul is going to talk a little bit more. What are the characteristics of a genuine apostle? Signs? Wonders? How they deal with money? How they deal with people? Paul is a minister. And as a minister, he is going to draw attention to the people about his ministry and his calling. He says, truly, the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. Were there signs and wonders and mighty deeds throughout the ministry of Paul the apostle? The answer is yes. Were there signs and wonders and mighty deeds as he went to different places at different times? Yes. In Philippi? Yes. In Berea? Yes. In Corinth? Yes. 
And so, the, the remarkable thing isn't the signs, the wonders, and the mighty deeds. The remarkable thing is the circumstances. Read it again. Truly, the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance. This is the key. What does that mean? The word translated perseverance is the very familiar word that all of you know by now, having been in Bible study so faithfully, it's the Greek word hupomone. Remember, this is sometimes translated patience, but it's perseverance. In other words, this is the circumstance of signs, wonders, and mighty deeds that have been wrought with great patience in difficult and sorrowful circumstances. Do you want proof of an apostolic ministry? Steadfast endurance under trial. That's the proof. Signs translates the Greek word semia or miracles. Wonders, terada, the effect of the miracles on the observer. So a sign is the miracle. The wonder is the effect that the miracle has on the people who are watching the miracle take place. And the mighty deeds translates again a familiar word, dunamis, Great works, powerful deeds, sometimes translated miracles in and of himself. The miracles of Jesus and the apostles were powerful works and signs. But remember, the powerful works and signs weren't just simply for the benefit so that people could be wowed. It wasn't just simply so that blind eyes could see or deaf ears could hear. The signs were wrought in order to authenticate the message Of the person who is speaking. And in this particular instance, it's Paul. And what is the message? It's the gospel that he talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. When he says, moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received and in which you stand. In other words... It wasn't a miracle crusade for the purpose of demonstrating his apostolic authority, but rather to confirm the message that God had given to him by Christ. So does a genuine ministry always mean manifestations of divine power? Well, again, there's a couple of things that you can think about. The first thing that you can think about is Miracles, signs, and wonders were given to people not of great faith, but the people who had little faith. For the person who goes, do I need a sign or a miracle or a wonder in order to speak to my lack of faith? The philosophical materialist doesn't believe in miracles. The Eastern mystic thinks that everything is a miracle. But a miracle in the Bible is the supernatural intervention on the part of God in order to make a point. John Foster writes, Miracles are the great bell of the universe which draws men to God's sermon. Ian McPherson writes, We are not to require signs, but we are to regard signs. They're not given to produce faith but to inform faith. I grew up in a world early on in the Christian realm of things where people began to think, well, how come there aren't more signs and wonders? There was a very well-known Bible teacher in the 1970s and 80s who came out publicly and he said, I want to see more of the stuff. And someone asked him, what stuff are you talking about? You know, the signs, the miracles, and the wonders. And what began to emerge was a whole sign, miracle, and wonder movement. But what happened was it strangely went away from the gospel. You know what? Something more is often some wind up, winds up being something less. Leslie Weatherhood wrote, A miracle is a law-abiding event 
by which God accomplished his redemptive purposes through the release of energies which belong to a plane of being higher than any with which we are normally familiar. A miracle really is the intervention by God, the supernatural circumstances that take place. But again, I'm going to suggest to you, by and large, it's to authenticate a message. And note what Paul says. The signs of an apostle were accomplished among you, the Corinthians. He uses the passive mood in the original language. That's a way of saying he's not crediting himself, but rather it's God who uses him. It's God who uses Paul the apostle to bring about miracles in the lives of the people of Corinth. And that's the point that he's making. Warren Wearsby adds this helpful caution. He writes, Miracles and signs alone are not proof that a man is sent from God, for Satan himself has miraculous credentials. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. When a servant's life and motives are pure, then we can trust it then we can trust any miracles that God may give. But when his or her life is not right, those miracles can't necessarily be from the Lord. So there's a couple of things to think about. The the thing I would think about is this. What is the message and what is the miracle? Because the miracle is supposed to authenticate the message. And so Paul will now move to the subject of the benefits and the blessings of helping. He writes in verse 13, For what is it in which you were inferior to other churches? I want you to tie it to the previous verse. For what is it in which you were inferior to the other churches? Did Corinth experience miracles? Yes. Did they experience signs and wonders? Yes. Did they experience supernatural giftings? Yes. For what is it in which you were inferior to other churches? Nothing. They had an apostolic witness. They had apostolic preaching. They had signs and wonders and great and mighty deeds. Look what Paul says. Except. Well, there is something that's different. Except that I myself was not burdensome to you. Forgive me this wrong. Oh yeah, there was something that was different here. The other churches supported me. This church didn't support me. Now, by the way, is he complaining about that? I'm going to suggest to you, not necessarily. When he says, except that I myself was not burdensome to you, forgive me this wrong. Paul, now remember, who are the critics? The people who say he's not a real apostle, or if he's not a real apostle, he's not like Peter, James, and John. What else is the criticism? Well, Paul has been accused of illegitimate ministry. Think about this for just a moment. Because he didn't take a salary. Can you imagine that in today's day and age? Well, how do you know that this person's legitimate or illegitimate? Well, if Paul were a real minister, then he would have accepted a salary from the church. I think that that's interesting. Paul had hurt the reputation or the image of the ministry by refusing a salary. Now, I want you to just think about what Paul is doing. When he says, forgive me this wrong. He didn't accept financial support from the church. This left some people with the impression that he might be inferior. By failing to adequately support Paul, the church appears to be inferior or carnal or neglectful or lacking love or self-centered or non-mission-minded or unconcerned. Here's what I'm going to suggest to you. As you reread verse 13, when he says, I myself was not burdensome to you. Forgive me this wrong. One of two things is true. Paul says, forgive me this wrong. He's either being sincere or sarcastic. Okay, this is the voting time. All in favor of sincere, raise your hand. No one. (laughs) 
All in favor of sarcastic, raise your hand. Lots of you. How many are you just, you're not sure. You're just, there's no undecided. Okay, well, just a couple of undecided. But let's just play this out for just a moment. He is sincere or he is sarcastic. Or maybe some combination of the two. If Paul is being sincere, he doesn't mean for his action to reflect on them or put them in a negative light. Let's just pause for just a moment. Do you think it's true that Paul loves them? Yeah, it is absolutely true. Paul loves the Corinthian believers. And because Paul loves the Corinthian believers, is it his job, is it his commitment, is he committed to making the Corinthians look like selfish and immature children throughout time and eternity as we read our Bible and we look at 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians thousands of years later? I'm going to suggest to you that Paul's motive isn't to make them look bad. And if the motive is actually sarcasm, as we read further, you're going to see how that's going to unfold. Look what it says in verse 14. Now for the third time, I'm ready to come to you. And I will not be burdensome to you. For I do not seek yours, but you. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. Paul recognizes and realizes that a lot of different people have a lot of different motives for service. Paul's motive is he has been appointed by Jesus. Paul is filled with love for the Corinthians and a desire to serve them. Now, the verse presents problems for the careful Bible student because when it says, Paul says, now for the third time, I'm ready to come to you. If Paul visited Corinth the second time, the visit wasn't recorded in the book of Acts. We know that he came to Corinth one time. By this time, has he made it a second time? We're not sure. Paul visits for the first time in Acts chapter 18, verse 1, and perhaps got ready to visit a second time but then wound up being delayed, and that seems to be what really happened. Paul had made a commitment to come and visit them, but he was delayed. I suspect it says now for the third time that this is the third time after preparing and delaying, he is yet still making an attempt to try and visit the Corinthian believers. I think that this is the reason why the New American Standard translates this, Behold, this is the third time I am ready to come to you. I think that what it means is that he tried time and time again. And so when he says, and I will not be burdensome to you, note what, it, what he's saying. He's saying, remember I told you that I didn't really want anything from you? It's still true. He's committed, and I will not be burdensome to you. Why? Because I do not seek yours. That means the things that belong to you. I don't want your money. I don't want your resources. Here's what Paul is looking for. Paul isn't seeking money or resources Paul isn't interested in things. Paul is interested in people. Now, I want you to think about that for the motivation. Paul is more interested in the people than he is in what they have to offer him. And so, I, again, I want you to think about it. Does a person's attitude about money serve as an indicator of the person's spiritual outlook and the person's spiritual calling. Remember, he's being accused of being less than a real apostle. But who are the people who are really taking advantage of the Corinthian people? The people who are trying to soak them for all that they're worth. Let's understand that for a moment. He's come twice before. 
He served without pay. And how does Paul repay the critic, the skeptic, the troublemaker, the backbiter, the backstabber? I just want you to think about this just for a moment. Paul desperately wants to go to Corinth because he loves the people. He loves them. And when he goes there, all that he faces is criticism, ridicule, difficulty, obstacles. Now, by the way, if you live in a home where your husband hates you or your wife despises you, If you live in a neighborhood where the person living across from you hates you and the person to the left hates you and the person who lives to the right of you hates you and the person in the back of you hates you. If you are in a neighborhood filled with haters and you're in a home filled with people who hate you, how fun is it going home? Not fun at all. So again, I want you to think this through. Paul has received... (laughs) Criticism, obstacles, why in the world would he want to arrange another visit? In spite of their refusal to defend him, in spite of their refusal to be loyal to him, he wants to visit them again. Chuck Swindoll writes, quote, why on earth would he want to do that? Swindoll suggests that the main reason is that Paul isn't a man of pride. The thorn in the flesh had taken that out of him. Has Paul received a vision of heaven? Yes. Does Paul have a thorn in the flesh? Yes. What has the thorn done? Paul says, it isn't about me. It isn't about how I look or how I feel or what I want. Does Paul have normal human feelings? I think that the answer is yes, of course. But Paul isn't going to allow pride and Paul isn't going to allow feelings to get in the way of the mission. And what is the mission? It's to bring the gospel. It's to present Christ. It's to grow people in grace and in truth and and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's to present Jesus as King and Lord. It's to point people to Jesus. And everything we do either prompts people in the direction of heaven or away from heaven. In the direction of eternity or away from eternity. Paul plans to continue with his present policy. I'm going to take no money from the church at Corinth. If he does take money, by the way, it's an offering in order to give to the needy saints in Judea. So Paul's desire is to reach them for Jesus, to grow them into mature saints. Paul is after them, but not after their money or their possessions or their resources. And so Paul claims to be their spiritual father. And as their spiritual father, he's going to lay out a truism. He's growing up in a world where moms and dads take care of the children. Not the children taking care of the mom and dad. Now, by the way, is this a do-all, be-all axiom? Does this mean that, that kids won't have to take care of their parents from time to time? Of course that's not what it means. Does it mean that A mom and a dad will take care of their children till the day that they die. And when they're 48 years old, it's okay to live in the basement of your your mom and dad. That's not what the passage is saying either. The passage is making a truism. And the truism is under normal circumstances, moms and dads take care of their kids. And under normal circumstances, kids don't exist in order to care for their parents. And that's what he's saying. Paul loves them as a dear father. And as a dear father, he will invest in them. And Paul will use his ministry gifts, his ministry callings, his time, his effort, his energy, his strength, his health, his life. That's what he's going to pour into this church. Paul's ministry is Christ-centered and then oriented on the people. And so here's what Paul is basically saying. The proof of his apostolic ministry isn't simply I had a revelation and I took a trip to heaven. 
It isn't simply the thorn in his flesh. And it isn't simply in in any of these things. But it's the sum and the substance of the accumulation of all of these things. His ministry is oriented on Jesus and the people. And so in verse 15 he says, And I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. How do you explain that? How do you explain that strange phenomenon? Look what Paul is saying. I'll very gladly spend and be spent for you. And then Paul writes... The more I love you, the less you seem to love me. What do you mean? Paul loves them. Paul defends them. They say that they love Paul, but they refuse to confront his critics. They continue to attack his credibility. They continue to attack his credentials. But I want you to think about this for just a moment. Isn't that kind of a truism for each and every one of us? Have you ever been in a situation where the more you gave, the less you got? The more affection you showed, the less affection was given? When Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you love one another, but this By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. By the way, does Jesus love his disciples? What do you suppose the answer is? I think the answer is yes. And the more that Jesus loved them, in direct proportion to Jesus' love for them, did they demonstrate love for each other? And when it came time for his arrest and betrayal, did the lavish love that Jesus poured out into their lives result in lavish reciprocation? The answer is no. He loved and he loved and he loved and he loved. And he loved and he loved and he loved and he loved. Paul writes to the Romans... In chapter 12, verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil or that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. Paul loves the Corinthians. And here's the idea What is the proof or the evidence of his apostolic calling? Paul appeals not only to his patience in difficult circumstances, but his profound love. That he has for them. Do you know what Paul is basically saying? Even though he doesn't come right out and say it. In in a way he does. He says. And I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Though the more abundantly. Look what it says in verse 15. Let's just take it in isolation just for a moment. I love you. And then he writes. The less I am loved. Here's what he's basically saying. One of the proofs of my apostolic ministry, he's saying, is I love you more than the false teachers love you. The reason why I love you more than the false teachers love you is I've demonstrated my love for you in selflessness and sacrifice. In other words, Paul's position is I'm willing to have less so that you can have more. And remember, that's probably what Paul means by loving. It's a willingness to do what's right towards them. It makes perfect sense for us to love our family. It makes perfect sense for us to love our friends. But Paul is now given an opportunity that each and every one of us will probably also be given. It's an opportunity not just to love the people who love you, but for the people who have no love for you whatsoever. Because remember, Jesus says that we're to love our enemies. Paul realizes something. The same thing that I think you realize. Do some people think that they have spiritual gifts? Yes. Do some people think that their spiritual gift is pointing out other people's flaws? 
I suspect that there really are that, that, that kind of person. <laughs> I think recently on an event that we had, and there was a paper uh, that was being handed out, and one person handed me the paper back, and they, they had circled the one spelling error that was in the paper. That was, that was it. Some people just have a way of looking at things, and if the I isn't dotted or the T crossed or if a word is misspelled, for whatever reason, they see that, and that's the only thing that they see. Some people are critical because they don't know the whole story. Some people gripe and complain and criticize because it makes them feel better about themselves. Some people criticize because it's easier to complain about problems than generating the kind of energy necessary to solve the problems. But some people criticize because a genuine fault really needs to be corrected. And so part of the challenge that we have is to speak the truth, but to speak the truth in love. In his book, The Grace of Giving, Stephen Alford tells of a Baptist pastor during the American Revolution. Maybe some of you have heard his name. It's Peter Miller. And Miller lived in Ephrata, Pennsylvania, and enjoyed a personal relationship and friendship with George Washington. In Ephrata also lived a guy named Michael Whitman. He was an evil-minded sort who did all kinds of things to oppose and humiliate the pastor. And one day Michael Whitman was arrested for treason and he was sentenced to die. And Peter Miller traveled 70 miles on foot. He walked through the dirt to Philadelphia to plead for the life of the traitor. No, Peter, General Washington said, I cannot grant you the life of your friend. Miller said, my friend, he's the bitterest enemy I have. He insults me, he hates me, he opposes me. He said, there's no one in the world who hates me more than this person. What? cried Washington. You've walked 70 miles to save the life of your enemy? Washington said, that puts it in a different light. I'll grant your pardon. And he did. And Peter Miller took Michael Whitman and they both walked home together. And Michael Whitman became his lifelong friend. No longer an enemy. This is part of what Paul is doing. No wonder in verse 16 he says, But be that as it may, I did not burden you. Nevertheless, being crafty, I caught you by cunning. This is one of those unusual Paulisms that's very, very difficult to understand. When he says, but be that as it may, I did not burden you. In other words, let's just go back to our original statement earlier. Sarcasm or sincerity. I did not burden you. But be that as it may, I did not burden you. In other words, here's what he's saying. You wanted me to be a burden, and I refused. Nevertheless, being crafty, the word translated crafty is an interesting word. By the way, when you hear the word crafty, you probably think, a person who does crafts? No, that's probably not what you think. The word is panorgos. It's only used here in the Greek New Testament. This is the only time that it appears in the New Testament. Literally, it means ready to do anything. In classic Greek literature, it usually meant something bad. In the book of Proverbs, it's sometimes translated clever or prudent. So what does Paul mean when he says, nevertheless being crafty? Again, Arndt and Gingrich, who are great Greek scholars, said, Paul says, taking up an expression used by his opponents, crafty fellow that I am. The idea being, I did not burden you, nevertheless being crafty, the idea being, 
a willingness in part to do whatever it took to honor God in Christ. This is an important distinction. And the reason why it's an important distinction because there are people who will come to you, maybe in the not too distant future. A person will be sorry for what they've done to you or said to you. And they'll say, I'm willing to do anything to make it right. And you need to be able to say, anything? And they'll say, anything. I'm willing to do anything to make it right. Including dishonor God and disobey God and continue in your rebellion? Well, that's not what I mean. Then I need you to say that. I need you to say, I'm willing to do anything so long as it honors God, so long as it's consistent with the scripture, so long as it will reveal my heart, so long as it will point people to Jesus, so long as it will bring about the peaceable fruit of righteousness. And so when he says, but be that as it may, I did not burden you, nevertheless being crafty, I caught you by cunning, the idea being Paul is willing to do anything in a sacrificial sense to bring them to a place of submission and obedience to Christ. And then he says in verse 17, did I take advantage of you by any of those whom I sent to you? I need you to understand in part what's being said. Again, Paul is saying to the person in Corinth who says, okay, Paul, even though you never took money directly from us, you took money indirectly through other people. When he says, did I take advantage of you by any of those whom I sent to you? Point number one. Has Paul taken advantage of the Corinthians? No. Has he asked them for anything? No. Has he expected anything? No. When Paul sent people to them, did he expect them to give the people he sent anything? The answer is no. And that's part of the point that he's making because he's addressing the critic. In verse 18, he says, I urged Titus and sent our brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not walk in the same spirit? Did we not walk in the same steps? Again, what's going on? Paul is saying, I'm going to suggest to you that Paul is saying, look, there are those people who have accused Paul of being in it for the money or that he's running a sort of a theological money laundering situation. In other words, for the critic who says, oh, yeah, you know, we didn't give Paul money, but we, we gave money to the people that Paul sent. No. Paul is being charged with taking money through a middleman, and Paul is in effect saying, it's not true. Paul is saying the accusation doesn't hold up under scrutiny. Did Paul take advantage of the people? No. Did he take advantage personally? No. Did he use anyone else to take advantage of them? The answer is no. But this goes to show just how unprincipled the critics were. They were willing to accuse Paul of gross impropriety when in fact the evidence seemed to indicate just the opposite. And again, why is this important to any of you or to me? And the sad truth is that sometimes you might be called upon to defend yourself. Even though the people who know you and the people who love you and the people who trust you should be able to provide that support. So how does Paul address the charge? He basically says, it doesn't hold up under scrutiny. Paul and Titus proved their sincere love for the church by supporting themselves and then generously helping the Corinthians. So what does Paul want to do? He wants to exalt Christ. What does Paul want to do? He wants to minister to the saints. What does Paul want to do? He wants to convince the people that he loves them. He loves them. 
not for what they can give him, but for what he can give them. Again, remember, Paul has no image to protect in verse 11. Remember what he said earlier? In verse 11, he said, I'm nobody. You're just out to protect your image. I don't have an image. Is this false humility? Paul has been to heaven and back. And in some ways, Paul has been to hell. Paul has been in the presence of Jesus in eternity. And Paul has undergone great sacrifice in fulfilling his ministry. But Paul understands something. That if you've been to heaven, it'll change your perspective. And if you've experienced great pain and humility and then submission to Christ, dependence upon Christ will create a situation where you don't have to worry about your image. Paul doesn't keep score. Paul doesn't care who owes him something or who doesn't owe him something. By the way, does the thorn still hurt? The answer is yes. Do the accusations and criticisms and refusal to support take its toll? I think that it does. But Paul has a servant's heart. Just like his master Jesus. Paul has come not to be served, but to serve. And that's why he's ready to return to Corinth. He's ready to go there because he knows that the critics' charges are unfounded. He has a clear conscience. He's willing to offer the Corinthians a clean slate. What else is he willing to give them? He models what he expects from others. Look again in verse 18. Did we not conduct ourselves in the same spirit and walk in the same steps? It's Paul's way of saying, when we were with you and when we talked with you and when we walked with you, did we give you any reason whatsoever to think anything other than what I'm saying right now? You see... I think part of the point that we can make from this passage is this. Each and every one of you and me spends each and every day as a help or as a hindrance. We're either helping people in our friendship and fellowship and relationship with Christ or we are hindering it. And one of the ways that you might take a self-analysis is to ask and answer this question. Are you easily offended? Do you constantly evaluate people in terms of how they've treated you? How important is your image to you? Do you keep score of all of the encounters? Is your goal to serve or be served? Do you take advantage of people? Are you modeling behavior, the same kind of behavior that you expect from others? Have you taken a break from service? Have you said, you know what, I think that I'm just going to sit this season out. I just think that I am just going to sit in the chair and I'm just going to listen and I am just going to observe and I'm just going to take in. And by the way, there's a season of sitting and there's a season of taking in. But the truth is, when you have a servant's heart, the servant's heart is going to well up inside of you and every molecule in your body is going to go, I need to serve, I need to serve, I need to serve. I want to make someone happy. I want to make someone healthy. I want to love someone for Jesus' sake. I want to pray with them. I want to minister to them. I want to encourage them. Isn't that exactly what you want? Someone to love you, encourage you, pray for you, be there for you. And then when someone criticizes you, that the people who love you, who surround you, are able to say with complete confidence, 
I know my husband. I know my wife. I know my children. Okay, forget about the children for just a second. No, I'm just kidding. You understand my point. My point is I know my family and I know my friends. I know what they're capable of and I know what they're incapable of. And if a person demonstrates love, grace, selflessness, and service, then it makes perfect sense for you to defend them. And of course, next week, we will finish chapter 12. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you. Lord, we know that for Paul, he's so reluctant and is so unwilling to defend himself. And then he comes to the end of his rope. And Heavenly Father, again, we pray, we pray, we pray, we pray that we as men and women would also be reluctant to defend ourselves. That we would expect, Lord, that you will defend us. That, Lord, we would expect that our husbands, our wives, our brothers, our sisters, our family, our friends, those who are closest to us, those who live with us and stay with us and who observe us day in and day out, they see what we're like when we wake up in the morning. They see how we live our lives throughout the day. They know exactly what we're like when we go to bed at night and when we repeat it all over again that our lives are marked by a humility and a submission and a love and a selflessness that brings about that fragrant freshness. Lord, we want to be men and women who love you. Lord, we pray that like Paul, that we would be way more concerned about people than we are about things way more concerned about people than we are about our image, way more concerned about people than about our pride. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.